continuing along from yesterday uh, with this uh, uh, chapter 2 called Understanding Dharma. So, birth, youth, aging, poverty, riches and so forth are all suffering if we don't know them. The Buddha said we should know dukkha and the other noble truths, the cause, cessation and path. If we do know, then there's nothing to suffer over. Again, this is knowing uh, the actuality of uh, these qualities rather than just knowing about, not just having the idea of, but um, that uh, direct uh, non-conceptual knowing. Some people say that suffering is a fixed part of the mind, that it's been there forever. I was talking to someone about this just today. I tried to explain that suffering is not intrinsic to the mind. It arises in the present moment. You have a mood of aversion in the mind and you experience suffering now. Think about a lemon. If you leave it alone, is it sour? Where is the sourness then? It's when the lemon contacts the tongue that sourness occurs. If you aren't experiencing it, it's as if it isn't there. When there is contact with the tongue, it arises in that moment. Uh, and from there arise dislike and afflictions. These afflictions are not intrinsic to the mind, but are momentary arisings. So this is a, an important principle and one that um, uh, Lumpo Sumato often uh, talked about uh, as, uh, over the years, was that um, oftentimes people relate to dukkha, saying, you know, everything is dukkha, everything is unsatisfactory, um, as if dukkha was a, like an absolute reality and that um, it's some kind of uh, absolute intrinsic quality of of all uh, of all uh, the uh, real uh, universe. But uh, uh, what uh, Lumpur is saying here, and what Lumpur Sumedha would, uh, would often emphasize, is that the, the noble truths, they are noble truths, in that they are they're conventional truths, when they're understood, they lead to nobility. They're not absolute truths. So it's not making a statement that dukkha is absolutely real, but there is the experience of dukkha that arises uh, when it's uh, met with uh, with ignorance, and it certainly feels absolutely real, but um, by turning towards dukkha and recognizing, oh, this is the experience of dissatisfaction that has arisen, uh, then there's a, a, a path beyond it. Um, so that, uh, and it's interesting that uh, Lumpur Chua mentions that uh, someone taking that kind of view that you know, everything is, uh, uh, dukkha is, is absolutely a part of, of all experience, but uh, they kind of miss the fact. Well, <laughs> where does dukkha niroda come in? If if dukkha is a, is an absolute reality, how could there be dukkha niroda? How could there be a cessation, an ending of dukkha? So that uh, that uh, is a very central aspect of the practice. That dukkha is not. It might feel like I'm always suffering, or I'm suffering all the time. It might be something that that uh, we casually say, but. Um, as Lumpur would uh, would point out, no, it, it arises in the present moment. It's not there all the time. We might tell ourselves that, but um, say, I'm always depressed, or I'm always anxious, I'm always irritated. But these are stories that we easily tell ourselves, but they don't actually match the the moment-to-moment reality of our experience. It's just a, a tale we tell ourselves. And then this example that Lumpur Chah gives about the lemon, it's like, if uh, uh, if you leave the lemon alone, is it sour? Or like the example that was given yesterday, if you don't pick up the rock, is it heavy? You know, the heaviness comes from the the attempt to pick it up. The sourness of the lemon, the lemon on its own, is not sour. The lemon plus the tongue and the sensory experience creates sourness, but uh, it isn't intrinsically sour. That's a, that's a, an experience that arises because of of conditions. So this is, a, 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 I think, a, a crucial point, and that when you really bring your attention to how, uh, how things work, then uh, even though we might say, I'm, I'm, I'm always irritated, or I'm always depressed, or I'm, uh, I'm always suffering, that to see, well, it's not actually the case, <laughs> not, not just from wishful thinking, but when it's really explored, 
then you can say, oh no, it, these uh, these states arise and pass away. They are they're impermanent. They're not absolute. Um, they are um, something that is a, a common experience. It's a familiar experience, but it's not something that has an absolute reality. Uh, and oftentimes people have sort of misread the Buddha's teaching or have uh, have kind of misinterpreted that and, and sort of taken that to be the case that uh, you know, dukkha is an absolute reality. But uh, it's a, a a a major misunderstanding, I would say. These afflictions are not intrinsic to the mind, but are momentary arisings. And so that also echoes a very um, uh, very common theme of Dhamma teaching in the Thai forest tradition. There's a, a short pair of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. Of, uh, uh, I forget the exact numbers, um, but uh, they, uh, there's a pair of them which uh, says uh, that the uh, the nature of the mind is radiant pabasaramidang uh, bikave defilements are only visitors akandukei um, kilesehi uh, the the akanduka means a visitor or uh, someone something that's just this uh, dropping in or coming by so that the defilements are only visitors that the the fundamental nature of mind is radiant and the defilements uh, arise and pass away they're only they're only visitors. So this what you find in the teaching of, uh, of Lumpur Man uh, and uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, many of the other forest ajans that uh, the defilements might be uh, regular visitors, <laughs> but they are just visitors. And the fundamental nature of mind, Pabasara Midang Bikawe, Pabasara is radiant, uh, radiance, brightness. Um, so the nature of the mind is radiant, is bright, and then defilements come along and obscure that radiance uh, through their their influence, but uh, they are they are only akandaka. They they are visitors. They are transitory. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Uh, just just a reflection. Um, so, is it is it would it be sort of kind of fair to say um, that nothing that arises and passes away provides mm-hmm. satisfaction? Or, or long-term satisfaction, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's necessarily dissatisfying. That... Uh, yeah, so that uh, a pleasant experience, um, let's say, is something that you, you know you're hungry and you eat something, some kind of food that is enjoyable. Then there, there is enjoyment there. There is there is a, a, a pleasant sensation there, but it's dukkha insofar as that pleasure can't sustain itself and uh, and then also the more that the mind um takes refuge in that and says oh this is good and then it's it's giving a a a, a, a an extra validity or substantiality to that that goodness is turning a what's a, a passing taste into a, oh this is this is absolutely good and so it's it's giving it more strength more reality than it it really possesses, and so then when that um, that kind of thrill, you know, maybe the first mouthful, oh, this is really good, and then the, by the sixth or seventh mouthful, you're busy thinking about something else. <laughs> it's lost that kind of charge, um, and so that uh, that it's not negating the fact that there is pleasant experience, but that it's not sustainable, and also that the mind adapts to. Uh, it what is uh, uh, I mean like with with, with uh, light you know, when you go out into the dark your pupils expand to take in more light when you come into the bright then your pupils contract so that the system is always adapting so when uh, uh, just on a neurological basis that's how, how our sensory nerves work they they <laughs> adapt to the level of the stimulus so it always becomes ordinary that was one of the the um, if interest, one of the interesting things I, I learned in the studying physiology was that's how they're called excitable <coughs> cells. How they, the, uh, for seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the the um, the sensory cells are called excitable cells. They always adapt to uh, to an average, so that even if it's a it's a very uh, sort of subtle um, input, it'll still. Uh, the system will adapt so that 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 very subtle input be- becomes 
quite uh, uh, quite noticeable, quite, uh, becomes average, or if it's very strong, very powerful, then the system will buffer itself, so that becomes average too. You're going to get used to the presence of continual loud noise and so on. So the system, just physiologically, the system is always creating dukkha. <laughs> it's 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 a it's something can't possibly stay thrilling and satisfying permanent just on a on a physiological basis as well as a mental one. Yes. So to my understanding, unless we free ourselves from the suffering, we are prey to it. So we are managing suffering until we are able to approach it completely. That's what we're doing. <laughs> it's also that the, yesterday with the the discussion about doing good, and the uh, and the, the 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 benefits of creating wholesome karma. So managing suffering is like you're doing what you can to create the causes for for psychological ease, physical ease, and comfort, and and non-conflict, and so forth. That you're you're uh, working to. Um, Make a, 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 a um, the experiences of dukkha that arise it more easily recognizable, more easily workable, um, and uh, more um, uh, more a simple not to to um, to be grasped at or clung to. So that we uh, life in the monastery is very benign. You know, we're not we're not killing anything. We're not we're not engaging in sexual activity. We're not stealing things. We're not shouting at each other. We're not fighting each other. So it's uh, that the benignness of the environment. So even if you do experience aversion or greed, then the targets are like toast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it feels like this management of dukkha is a way of distracting yourself rather than dealing with the problem. Let's say I have aversion towards someone. Okay, in that in this moment, I'm going to practice metta. Because I have aversion to this feeling that I'm experiencing right now, so it's not a matter of feeling meta for that person. It's not having aversion to this feeling that arises on account of behavior of other person. Or well, I say if there's enough mindfulness to recognize that's what's happening, you're in good shape. Really, I mean, it's like if you don't recognize that's what's happening, and then. Then I would say that the the dukkha of that conflict is is not being um, uh, worked with in a substantial way. But if if the mind is aware, oh, I'm just doing something to avoid this. I'm I'm just working to make myself feel feel better, and it isn't really getting to the root of things. Just that degree of mindfulness. Okay, that's here is avoidance tactics going on. That's what this is. So there's an uh, awareness of of that. That kind of a habit or a, a, a reaction. It's like one of the most helpful teachings of Lumpur Cha that I quote very, very often is where he said that fifty to seventy percent of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. <laughs> and that, that's such a helpful teaching. I might think that was a really good excuse <laughs> to not deal with your issues, but it's it's very, I think, very observant. He's very, you know, he's really seen how things work, and. It's not giving an just giving an excuse to be following defilements, but recognizing, yeah, you can see there's a deeply ingrained habit, and, and it's also sometimes you're just a bit too tired. You haven't got the juice to work with it, or it's like this is a bit too steep to climb today. I think <laughs> I need some more more candle mint cake to get up that hill. You know that uh, that you know you're recognizing your, your own limitations, and that um, so I feel that's that's a very very skillful teaching, but. But seriously, this the the mindfulness to know, um, I'm uh, I'm uh, avoiding this particular issue because it, it's a bit too intense for me to deal with right now. Or this is a, a way that I'm looking at to 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 work with it, so I don't have to meet this face on. Okay, that's uh, just that amount of recognition is is helpful. Okay. When the mind has attained peace, that is the end of the path. This is the goal the Buddha wished everyone to realize. But before we reach the end, we need to know how to practice in order to attain a peaceful mind. Our minds are not peaceful 
because they've not realized the genuine Dharma. The mind is still unskilled and unreliable, lacking the wisdom that knows things as they are, that sees the truth of all phenomena, or sabhava dhamma, natural conditions. Sabhava means existing like that. So sa means true or real. Bhava means existence. Um, so existing like that. Uh, sabhava, or nat- naturally existing. Existing like that. Existing just as it is. Whether or not a Buddha appears in the world, phenomena exist as they are. They do not change into some other mode of existence. We're taught to begin with right understanding. Then there are right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, or right concentration. That's the Eightfold Path. We say there are eight, but... They are really factors of the one path upon which each individual must travel. When understanding is correct, thinking will be correct. So will speech and all the other factors. When the mind is established in what is correct, the entire progression of the path must be correct. Nothing will be wrong and walking the path will lead to peace. So this is a, a very frequent theme in the, in the suttas. The Buddha says, "Right view comes first. Um, that uh, and there's a number of teachings that begin with those words. You know, right view, samaditi. That's the first factor of the eightfold path. And also, he says, uh, uh, right view is the forerunner of all wholesome states. Just like the the lightening of the sky uh, before the dawn is the forerunner of the rising of the sun. So, to uh, right view, samaditi. That's the forerunner of all wholesome uh, wholesome states of mind." And so that uh, if that um, uh, if that you know, right view or view that is uh, in in tune with reality, in tune with Dhamma, then it's like setting off in a skillful direction. And so the example that um, I think I was giving at, at New Year's Day, we had a lot of people coming to the monastery to begin the new year, you know, trying to start the new year in a skillful way, coming to the monastery and uh, uh, receiving good wishes and blessings. Uh, I think when I was uh, uh, offering some reflections on on New Year's Day, it's rather like if you have a a nut and a bolt, if you set the nut correctly on the thread of the bolt, then it'll turn quite quite easily and you can tighten up the nut so that it it sits quite comfortably on the thread and it can can hold uh, things in place appropriately. If it's cross-threaded, if you set the nut kind of, at an angle uh, to the thread of the bolt, then uh, you can you can tighten it a little bit, and then it'll get stuck, and you can't unstick it, and it won't hold things in place, and and uh, it won't do its job, and you can't you can't undo it if it's if it's really tight. So it's that setting the nut uh, in the, uh, correctly on the threads of the of the bolt, and then getting it uh, appropriate in place, then everything goes smoothly from there. So uh, that's uh, one way of thinking of of um establishing right view is like if that if it's right in the beginning then it'll be uh, uh, as you're saying here then that that attunement then uh, carries on through the the whole system and essentially there's different ways of uh, that the buddha describes right view um and part of it is uh, understanding or appreciating the uh, the actuality of cause and effect uh, how wholesome action leads to um, pleasant results, unwholesome action leads to painful results. But uh, I would say more, more broadly and more radi- uh, and more significantly, uh, right view is seeing things in terms of the four noble truths. It doesn't just rem- mean remembering suffering, origin, c- cessation, path as a kind of mantra, but it's that framework of dukkha, samudaya, niroda, amaga as the sort of the, the the framework through which we look at, at our life and our field of experience, rather than this is mine, that's yours, this is inside, that's outside, I like, I don't like, that the, the, the usual kind of frameworks that we uh, that we apply you know, uh, in our ordinary everyday activity, but changing that the, the framework, changing the paradigm to is there dukkha, is there no dukkha? If there's dukkha, uh, what's what's being clung to? Uh, if there's if there's clinging going on, then let it be uh, relinquished, and then the clinging having been relinquished, then does the dukkha end? Yes, the dukkha ends. So that whether it's to a thought, whether it's to an activity, whether it's to a relationship, whether it's to the, the weather, 
uh, whatever it might be in connection with, inside or outside, subtle or coarse, that seeing that uh, the the flow of experience in each of our lives, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, um, within that framework of the of the four noble truths, that's um, in a sense right view or the, the the right framework, the right window to to be uh, looking through the, that. If things are, are framed in that way, if uh, that that framework is applied in, in a systematic way, then that's in a sense. Um, setting the mind in a skillful direction for the rest of the the factors to all sort of come into being and to be sort of developed skillfully. The Buddha taught about letting go. When there is pleasurable experience, he said to recognize that it's merely pleasure. When there's painful experience, he said to recognize that it's merely pain. There is no one experiencing pleasure or pain, happiness or suffering. These things appear as a result of previous causes, but when we're practicing correctly, we won't find any owner of them. The Buddha taught us to see that it is merely happiness, merely suffering, not a self, a being, a person, or an individual entity. This is right view. There is no self or owner of these conditions. So, uh, and that uh, that word merely... um, uh, uh, if I remember correctly uh, from Lumpur Chah's teachings, the, the, the Thai expression would be kenan. It's just that. It, it's all it is. It's, there's, there's nothing more to it than that. Kenan. It's just that. Um, and so that would be uh, very, very frequently in, uh, appearing in his, his Dhamma talk, saying kenan. It's just that. It's just it's just kwam uh, suk. It's just happiness. Kwam tuk. It's just, it's just discomfort, just unhappiness. That's all. Don't add anything to it. And so that um, it might seem like uh, the the English word merely is a sort of put down or dismissive, but what it's pointing to is the, in a way the appreciation of the, the the simple pattern of experience as it is known without adding anything to it, and particularly not adding a a me who's the experiencer, a me who's the the owner of that uh, that activity or that feeling, those those perceptions. <coughs> We think in terms of my leg, my arm, my friends. Thus we see self. But according to Dharma, this is not seeing self. Understanding that these are not self is seeing self. You see it, but you don't carry it. If you see a snake, but don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison doesn't get you. So the Buddha said to see self. This is difficult to hear and understand. The world has its conventions. The teachings of the world, when they reach the mind of the Buddha, are all false. The teachings of the enlightened ones, when they reach the minds of worldly beings, are false. So just to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> so, um, understanding that these uh, uh, understanding that these are not self, my uh, the leg, the arm, the friends, and so on, is seeing self, quote-unquote. You see it, but you don't carry it. So I can say I am Ajahn Amra, or this is Amravati. This is uh, um, uh, this is uh, uh, the the names that are applied. You're not pretending that there aren't any names or there aren't individual um, bodies according to the conventions of things, but that uh, so the, uh, there's a, a recognition of those characteristics, but they're not turned into some kind of permanent individual entity. As he says, you see a snake, but you don't pick it up. So I can say, yeah, I am Ajahn Amra. But if I don't take that as an absolute reality, or that that's uh, something that is you know, fundamentally you know, real and solid in a permanent way, then it, uh, I, I'm not going to go around saying, you know, I am I am that that monk who used to be known as Ajahn Amaro, or the the artist formerly known as Prince. You know. <laughs> Late, you know, that uh, it becomes a bit cumbersome and difficult. You know, we we use the conventions. Uh, uh, of of self, but we don't uh, don't pick them up like a uh, the the snake. You don't pick it up and get bitten by the poison, or affected by the poison. Then this last little bit he says here: the teachings of the world, when they reach the mind of the Buddha, are all false. So the teachings of the world—that's like um, 
So having a, having a, a lot of possessions is a good thing. Having no possessions is a bad thing. Um, being a, admired by people is a good thing. Being criticized by people is a, is a bad thing. That uh, the ordinary judgments of the world is that when they reach the mind of the Buddha, they're all false. They recognize all these superficial and um, uh, you know, worldly perceptions. So the teachings of the world, when they reach the mind of the Buddha, are all false. So that's what we, what in the worldly terms are called valuable or um, desirable or things that are, are say, off-putting. Um, you know, the, 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 those are seen as sort of superficial or, or not to be trusted in the awake mind. The teachings of the enlightened ones, when they reach the minds of worldly people, are false. So that um, the uh, the teachings of the enlightened ones that you know nothing is worth grasping, <laughs> nothing is really ownable, uh, the body is not self, and so forth. When they reach the mind of worldly beings, then well, the worldly mind will say, "Well, that's not true, or that's rubbish, or I don't agree with that." <laughs> Probably most of us started out there. Certainly, my first encounter, my first uh, encounter with uh, Buddha Dhamma in the the forest monastery in uh, in uh, Thailand. Uh, was uh, an anagarika who was given the job of explaining the basics of of the monastery and the and the meditation to me and said wait and uh, he said yeah well the Buddha said uh, the Buddha said life is suffering and I said well I, that's that's rubbish for a start <laughs> so I began by disagreement myself <laughs> so I can I can relate to that so the teachings of the enlightened ones when they reach the minds of worldly beings are false. When people feel that they are the owners of good and bad experience, or that these things happen to their selves, they are at the mercy of impermanence. Because all things are subject to change, being attached to them can only produce experience that is unsatisfactory. You're sometimes pleased and sometimes upset as things come and go and keep changing. There is turmoil because wrong view has invaded your mind and given you mistaken ideas. You end up carrying happiness and suffering, and they get heavy for you. So one particular sentence there, because all things are subject to change, being attached to them can only produce experience that is unsatisfactory. So you try to hold on to a thing, it changes. So you can't hold it, you can't keep it. Like if, uh, like trying to hold a, a, a sound or a, you know, a cloud or a... Uh, moonlight you know you can't hold it it's it's not ownable um, if you try to own things if you try to hang on to them uh, then it can only be leading to unsatisfactoriness because it's things are not ownable they're not they they are not possessable and so their very effort to 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 uh, to cling to hold to own necessarily will bring dukkha it's like if you if you seek security in that which is insecure then you have to be disappointed if you seek for um, satisfaction in that which can't satisfy you have to be disappointed so that's again is a very very frequent theme and I, I, I probably you could just take that one sentence because all things are subject to change being attached to them can only produce experience that is unsatisfactory it'll probably last for the rest of the week <laughs> apply you know, as appropriate like, uh, to uh, the particular areas of, of attachment that uh, that we all experience. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes? Um, sometimes it seems that there's, uh, it's, it might be easy enough to see where attachment is happening. Again, it's, you know, in a more kind of more tangible thing relationships or to objects or sensory things but I'm wondering about something like aversion, because that's very strong something in the mind is attaching to something but it doesn't seem seeable <laughs> and, yeah. and so I wonder about deep more I assume more deep kind of maybe psychological things that cause that to keep coming up and and to keep not really seeing the the root of it in anything like the same way as, mm -hmm. as one might do in more kind of upper layers maybe. Mm -hmm. So is the practice does the practice kind of just 
work its way down into more. Ideally, yeah. that's the short answer. That uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's in a way that dukkha is the that's the signal, that's the flag. That if there's that that feeling of wrongness or it shouldn't be this wayness. Uh, that or you know a stressing a, a tensing it within, then just as you say, that where's this coming from? What, what, what's this? Uh, what's causing this? And it can be quite invisible or not apparent. And uh, but you know, okay, something's being attached to, something's being clung to, because the, there's this. The dukkha is the is the the kind of reference point. That's the meditation object in a way. So then, and it can be. Then that sense of exploring, you know, not to try and create things where you know where they are, they, they're not really existent, but that having that curiosity, like where is this coming from? Why does that always make me feel upset, or why do I feel intimidated in such a situation, or why does that automatically trigger uh, restlessness or or, or desire? You know, why does I why do I suddenly feel like I got to eat something? What? Huh? I wasn't hungry a minute ago. Suddenly, I've, I, I'm intimidated, and I've got to. Where's the fridge? You know, and so or whatever that might be. And the, the, oh, where's that coming from? Why do I? Why does my mind do that? And it can be mysterious. And so, that my my usual recommendation with that is to say, well, if it's not obvious, don't fill up the space with just imagination, but just flag, you know, <laughs> mark it for for. A, uh, exploration. Well, that's interesting. For some reason, that's what my, my mind does. It gets excited by this, or gets intimidated by that, or just switches off. Um, and that, uh, and so, okay, well, I'm not sure why it does that, but uh, take note and just uh, kind of highlight it for for something to be explored. And, uh, and uh, say, okay, well, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I'll keep an eye on that. And then often, if we are patient and steady with the practice, then over time, then what often happens is that there's, uh, you know, a few weeks or days or months later, ding, oh, that, that, was, that was a sequence when that person said that, and then I reacted in that way. Then that feeling arose, oh, maybe that's it. And then, so keep an eye on and see it, or the similar pattern happens again. Aha, that's the way it seems to work, okay. So it can be a long process exploring those things, and and also sometimes just talking with your friends and saying that the input from Kalyanamita, you know, people say, "I find I keep doing this." Or <laughs> that uh, you know, have you have you noticed that I, that in such and such a situation, I, I'm often acting like this, or I'm doing that. Um, yeah, how, what do you make of that? And then it, sometimes. But particularly with areas that are uh, where there's sort of delusion or things are foggy, unclear, then getting input from from you know your friends or like-minded people it can be a very helpful way of giving us a perspective on it that is not immediately accessible from within ourselves. And I find that also um, well, this has developed because there was a time when I would really try to. Work, work it all out in some kind of <laughs> limited way or whatever means I had at my disposal um, uns- unsatisfactorily mm-hmm. but that believing it where it just doesn't feel obvious and it feels like wholesome, something wholesome in, well I don't know what mm-hmm. it is I can just kind of set, just <laughs> set it down yeah I often I, I say let's have a, have a shelf for the mysteries just park them up there, okay. <laughs> Two or three shelves for the mysteries. Like, well, that's interesting. I don't know why I do that, but okay, put that up there. Because often uh, I have a mind that likes to explain everything and have sort of reasons and explanations and figuring it all out. And I found that over time that just you know, clutters things up because almost always your explanations are not kind of wide of the mark. And often just that, and what's more helpful is just that sense of, well, I don't know where that's coming from, but that pattern is repeating itself so just keep keep watching that and see see where that goes and also the mind that's trying to work work it out is a limited you know yeah it's got limited resources yeah Yeah. i was just wondering could a lot some of these things just be part of being human in that the the system the biological system 
as the over-evolution, it's developed certain aversions and as part of survival as well. And sometimes we don't really... Obviously, some things are psychological developed through mm-hmm. the ego, but some things are maybe just nature, the mm-hmm. way we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. So we're automatically feel some aversion to some things. And yeah, or, or, or competition, the feeling jealousy, um, and uh, that... Uh, you know, that you, it's triggered by a particular sort of social situation or an interaction like, no, why did I suddenly feel, what about me? Like, <laughs> where did that come from? And it's, it can, many things can just be the conditioning of being a pack animal, you know, that the, the kind of very ancient conditioning of us as a sort of human primate group, that uh, that's how we, we function. And, and that um, things like aggression or territory... Competition, jealousy, um, you know, all those sort of things that it can be very non-personal, and just uh, just uh, sometimes that um, just recognizing that uh, of certain situations, certain interactions, they they, they trigger certain results, and because a lot of it is 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 most helped by seeing it. You know, it's not a personal thing. It's just the the, the flow of circumstance brings that kind of a reaction. It's just because of this cause, here's this effect. Well, that, that's all. It's not. The mind doesn't have to make anything of it. And uh, I'd say a, a lot of it is just is non-personal. It's not like particular events in your life. We're just having a human body and a mind and the and the senses. And isn't this sense of self as well similar? It's just part of having a body is that you're going to have a sense of the self, and so you can't necessarily stop it arising but you can see that it's just this process going on because of the way the the organism has to function yeah the world. well like like and like Gumbucha was saying that uh, uh, understanding that these are not self is seeing self uh, the i think in one of the readings a couple of days ago i was pointing out how the ego isn't uh, isn't a defilement in and of itself it's it's a psychological structure that it evolved for a particular purpose. It, it serves a, a useful role in the human groups to, to be able to function in a particular way. It becomes problematic when it's taken as an absolute reality. Like, I am this, this sort of permanent individual me, this great thing. And that uh, it's, uh, it, those sort of um, uh, psychological structures of how to individuate and function in a group and find your sort of a place in a group appropriate to, you know, time and a situation. Those are, you know, useful. <laughs> they're useful tools, and they've they've evolved, and they're part of our makeup. It's like a hand or the eye or the ears. That just they they serve a purpose in an evolutionary sense for us as functioning as part of a of a group. But it's where it overspills its boundaries, then it becomes a, a problematic. And that. Can I, it's a bit um, connected question because I never read it anywhere else. In Ajahn Buddha Dasa, uh, he had an article I was just reading and he said, an arahant would still have kilesas but not asavas and not anusaya. And I was just wondering if it's like the... Or have you ever came across the suttas like that? Like I'm not uh, sure about the... Uh, in the suttas, certainly... Uh, in 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 some of the teachings of the forest ajans uh, like Lumpodun, Lumpocha, and and others, they they would quite happily mention that you know that the defilements uh, arise, but they're not not given any place to land. It's like Lumpodun had this great expression. He said that, that I think it was like me down my owl, which is like they they arrive, but I don't receive them. Like the the. The um the post the the <laughs> the the the, the postie brings the parcel but you don't sign for it it's like no, return to sender it's like it's delivered but you don't receive it and so uh, that uh, which there there's uh, I think in the Abhidhamma that that they don't like to substantiate that they say no no an arahant you know, has no defilements whatsoever but I think to me it's also indicated it's not so much um, spelled out in terms of kilesa, but I feel, and again, this might sound a bit heretical, but a lot of the dialogues between the Buddha and Mara, uh, I feel, is a, a mythological expression of 
those defilements arising in the mind of the Buddha where he's sitting up in the Himalayas and this thought arises, Mara comes along and this thought arises, you know, if uh, uh, if I wish to, I could turn the entire Himalayan mountain range into solid gold if I wanted to. And then you know, the Buddha recognizes, you know, I know you, Mara. This, and twice that, twice that amount wouldn't be enough for one person's greed. And, that, and so that the that it's it's depicted mythologically as Mara coming along with these these kind of statements or, or temptations, and but and immediately the, the Buddha is never contending against Mara, but is never deluded by that. So to me, it's a way of representing those thoughts of of um, of, of greed or uh, of um, or of self doubt. Uh, uh, you know, arising and just there's there's no place for them to land. They're not given any substantiality, so it's cast into that form of Mara coming along and saying, "What are you doing lying down? To, you know, you're supposed to be a samasam Buddha. What are you doing taking a nap in the middle of the day? Yeah, you're lazy." And the Buddha saying, yeah, "I know you, Mara. <laughs> it's the hot season, and it's totally appropriate. I lie, you know, I, I, I lie down mindfully and set in, in mind the time for waking and then I lie down and when I wake up I'm mindful when I go to sleep and mindful when I wake up there's no problem so uh, that that's the, the shape it takes in the suttas as far as I'm aware um, but uh, yeah, Ajahn Buddhadasa is extraordinarily well read so he might have been particular places he would have picked that up from but that's one of the ways I would read that So, to continue. If there is right view, then feeling is merely feeling. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Pain is merely pain. There's no owner of either pleasure or pain. The Buddha wanted us to contemplate in this way. If we contemplate for some time, there comes about that quality of the Dharma that calls the mind to look and see what's going on. What exactly is this happiness we experience? What is this suffering that we have? Are they something stable or permanent, or how exactly are they? We're certainly able to look at things that we've experienced before. Happiness we've had, did it end? Have we ever had unhappiness? Did it last forever? When we come to know about phenomena and don't get so involved with them, the mind becomes peaceful because we're no longer trying to own anything. But still, we can enjoy our lives and make use of the things in this world. The household items that we have, kitchen goods, furniture and so on, they're not really ours. We use them, but it is in order to gain the realization that they are not ours. We can use them freely and comfortably without, without having to suffer over them. We use them with a knowledge that is comprehensive and transcends ordinary ways. If we cannot be above all these things, we are under them, carrying them with the attachment that says, This is mine! bearing their weight. This wrong view can only lead to suffering because things will never work out exactly as we desire. So this, uh, um, him talking about uh, happiness and suffering, um, uh, uh, what exactly is this happiness we experience? What is this suffering that we have? So we have our winter retreat time now and a lot of opportunity for formal practice. But one of the things that's, that's interesting um, that sometimes uh, can be so clear for a few moments or for an extended time is when the the mind is experiencing uh, some kind of happy, bright state or or, or, or pa- some kind of painful state. If it's really looked at, uh, and there can be these moments where something is yes, this is very sweet or this is very delightful, but it's it's just this. It's the. <laughs> It's uh, somehow it loses its solidity, or um, uh, or something is painful. That it's like yes, there's experience of painfulness. It's still there's still pain there, but somehow it sort of it's it's not really painful anymore. There's this known as an experience going on, and that it's sort of technically painful, but. Something in that moment, with that great, when there's a great degree of stability and clarity, it just sees it in a different way. It's like, oh, well, this is just a happy feeling. That's all. It's just this, and, or this is just a painful feeling. It's just this, um, and that 
there's a, a change of view, a, a change of perspective. And there's a, a, a different Dharma talk where Lumpuchara is talking about when he was a younger monk on Tudong and he was staying in this uh, an abandoned uh, monastery, uh, living by himself for quite some time. And he got into some, some very, very clear and deep states of meditation. And, uh, and just looking at the objects around him, he said, there was a kettle, but it wasn't a kettle. There was a spittoon, but it wasn't a spittoon. It wasn't anything else, but it's it's it, the kettleness went away, or the spittoon went. The, 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 that designation vanished, and so that it still had its shape, but the mind wasn't imputing that quality to it. And so sometimes uh, it can be that happiness and, and unhappiness, comfort and discomfort, can be uh, experienced in that same kind of a way, and it, it can be. Um, so sort of, uh, disconcerting or, or, or surprising that yes, the experience is there, but it's something in the mind recognizes. Oh, this is actually just a pattern of experience in the mind. This is just pain consciousness, or this is just pleasure consciousness. That's all. It's just sukha, and and it's known in that moment just as a mental state with no substantiality. Um, and so those the, if, if those moments. Uh, of clarity do arise they can be uh, very very informative because then it ch- kind of changes the way that you chase after happiness or run away from pain it's like well something in you knows oh it's just that kenan it's, it's only that there isn't anything more to it it's just a uh, this is a mental event it's like i can say i see this book or i feel the, the sensations of this book but in that moment you can, you can recognize this is just feeling consciousness this is just eye consciousness this is a mental event this is woven together as a set of experiences and it's just these patterns of consciousness arising and passing in the mind oh and so then to some degree that then informs the touching and seeing and uh, and happiness and unhappiness as experienced in the future to some degree to some degree why do things break? Because they exist. Again, you can sit on that for a week. <laughs> Why do things break? Because they exist. Seeing things as already broken, you don't need to cry if they break. If the cup is not mine, then without this involvement, whether it breaks or not, there's no problem. You have things in your house, so you'd better think about this. Still, you have to teach your kids to take care of things if you just say, it's not ours, you'll end up with no plates to eat off. <laughs> if you speak in one way, but see in another way. Sorry, you speak in one way, but see in another way. If you use adult concepts for children, no one cleans the dishes. <laughs> All dhammas are not self. I'm not going to put my, I have no name, I have no one. So I'm not going to sign up for the, for the washing up rotor. That's wrong understanding. <laughs> Conventionally speaking, it's a good idea to put your name on the washing up rotor, and uh, or is it that uh, and yeah, it's talking about the mixing up the conventional truths and, and ultimate truths. That if you just say it's not ours, you'll end up with no plates to eat, eat off. The kids won't um, uh, they'll get broken, or the kids won't wash them. Living in the world, there will always be things we must do, but we do them with letting go, and the mind is peaceful without distress, so we can work at ease. This is right livelihood. Even if we have to even if we have hard, grueling work, it's okay. The Buddha wants us to escape from birth, but we want birth. What are we gonna get? We don't see the liability yet. We don't see the way that the Buddha sees. His teaching talked of the conceit that says, I'm better than others, I'm equal to others, I'm worse than others. If we think in any of these ways, it's not accurate. If we don't have this conceit, there's no obstruction. So again, there's quite a few things uh, packed into uh, these uh, uh, sentences here. Though that uh, um, 
the uh, the theme of being ready to work uh, and to engage, uh, but with an attitude of, of non-grasping and letting go, is very much a, a part of the style of life in uh, Wat Bapong and uh, many of all of Ajahn Chah's monasteries. So that um, uh, if there's an attitude of, of letting go of non-grasping, then there's an easefulness, there's a, a peacefulness in the the work that we do. Um, then he goes on to say, the Buddha wants us to escape from birth, but we want birth. Uh, wh- uh, what are we going to get? We don't see the liability yet. So in terms of um, we we want to get things, we want to be things, we want to be born into being uh, uh, successful or being uh, uh, effective in the, the work that we do or being approved of, being, being liked. Um, have having things uh, and being comfortable and not getting ill and so on, so that the uh, uh, escaping from birth is is uh, escaping from uh, creating attachments and, and grasping around all those different areas. But um, that's what we in the worldly habit is. We want to be born into all those things, yeah, comfort and approval and uh, success and so on and so forth. Uh, what are we going to get? We don't see the liability. So the the liability, uh, the Pali for liability is Adinava. And it's uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, uh, again, makes uh, uh, quite frequent reference to this pair of qualities. So uh, Asada is gratification. So when that that sense of, yes, it's something that you do that's pleasing or something that you, you hear or see or smell or taste or touch or, uh, and so on, that asada is gratification, uh, and then its partner is adinava, which is liability. So that the or the downside, the the the, the bill <laughs> that needs to be paid. So that, that and these two are a, they're a duet. They're, they're sort of two sides of the same coin: asada and adinava, the gratification and the liability or the, the danger. And so that that um, that mind that that's relishing. Uh, something that we like, or is uh, is hating something that we dislike, is f- or fearing that the degree to which the mind invests in a thing, liking or disliking or opinionating, whatever it might be, then that um, the the liability is then you're still invested in that when that changes, or that uh, something that you dislike won't go away, or something that you you uh, you do like you want to keep goes away. That uh, that's the the liability is that. Uh, things can't be uh, can't be owned, and uh, can't be controlled in any absolute way. So that is a, um, a quite a frequent uh, feature of the the Sutta teachings. Often it's described in terms of the uh, recognizing the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So how things arise, how they pass away, how they are pleasing. Uh, and then the, the the liability that goes with that that relishing that pleasure, and then the escape the nisarana, the the um, with respect to that is the insight into uh, seeing that oh this is impermanent it's unsatisfactory it's not self it's empty it's arising and passing away it's so that that the the nisarana the escape is through recognizing that. The, the need not to, to relish or get lost, get not get born into those particular uh, perceptions or experiences, and then they uh, not getting lost in the asada, then you also don't get uh, you don't get the sting of the liability. That that's not a surprise or a, or a loss. It's just that's the gratification. That's the that's the 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 liability. If you um, if you eat a lot of this, then it'll still be in your stomach halfway through the afternoon. <laughs> so that's the gratification, and there's the liability. So that seeing how the process works, then the the, uh, the heart is able to escape from that. People want happiness, riches, and so forth. They're attached to merit, only wanting tangible benefits, but not making real spiritual progress. In arithmetic, there are adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing but we, but we only want addition and multiplication. This is just self-cherishing. People will practice their meritorious activities, but still experience sickness and other problems, and they begin to wonder, huh, why does this happen? Where's the merit? But that isn't the point of merit and virtue. 
You don't seek merit to cause a cat to become a dog. It isn't something to change the nature of sankhara, conditioned phenomena. They are by nature unreliable. Whatever happens, you needn't get overly concerned or upset. So again, that might take a little bit of unpacking. <laughs> so the often the way people relate, uh, say, in Thailand, and I think to generally to creating good karma, is that if I make enough merit, if I make enough good karma, then bad things won't happen to me. So I, I will not. I will if I if I go to the monastery, make some offerings, then my kids will pass their exams. I won't get sick, um, and people will respect me. And uh, and so, um, yeah. Uh, what he's saying is that the um, people practice meritorious activities, but still experience sickness and other problems. Why does this happen? It's like I've made all this good karma. How come bad stuff is still happening? So and he's saying that's like. Um, trying to make a cat become a dog. It's like, no, it's not going to work that way. You, just because you're creating good karma doesn't mean that the causes of all unpleasant things are magically going to disappear. That's just that's not the way nature operates. So, um, and he sort of jumps to saying, you, know, you can't, don't seek merit to cause a cat to become a dog. Uh, you know, that it's uh, it's very magical thinking or, or, or uh, fanciful thinking to assume that if you make enough merit then bad things will never happen to you so it's got really it's a wrong understanding that um, uh, conditioned phenomena are by nature unreliable so that no matter how much merit you make <laughs> it's still going to be subject to, to sickness and the causes that have created been created in the past are still going to be likely to ripen uh, either right now or in the future because those causes have already been created so they're going to have a vipaka they're going to have an effect later on so um that um uh, by using that uh that expression uh, to to it's a way of uh helping us to cut through that kind of uh, i'm doing all these good things so therefore no no bad should ever happen to me it's like wait 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 <laughs> you're you're uh you're seeing it all incorrectly. That's not the way that uh, that life works. You're expecting a a cat to become a dog, or uh, or often he would say, uh, um, "Yeah, uh, you're mistaking a, a duck for a chicken." Ducks and chickens make frequent appearances in Nampuchar's talks. It's like it's a it's a duck, you know, and, and you and it uh, it sounds like a duck, so that. That's the way, the way it is. You can call it a chicken if you like, but it's still actually a duck. <laughs> you can you can expect something that's in, impermanent to be permanent, but it, it can't be. It's still it's still impermanent. That's it. That's its nature. Just because you call it a chicken doesn't make a duck into a, a chicken. It's it's still a duck. It's still a duck. I was just thinking, is there some cases though where some meritorious things are actually working as antidotes to the negative? So I've seen in some suitors, if somebody does something that's like the opposite of what they might have done, you know, working on love rather than hate, mm -hmm. that that could wear away the sort of causes of the hate because the mind becomes more and more mm -hmm. peaceful. So those potential bad effects don't arise. Yeah, they're, they're very... Uh much diluted or they uh, I mean one of the one of the four imponderables is all of the workings of karma so uh, but the, as a as a general rule yes you can counteract those negative effects by developing wholesome qualities that counter them but sometimes there's there's things that have been caused that there's going to be some kind of an effect it might be greatly reduced uh, but it'll still have some kind of ripple will will occur, and that that's so that the um, it's also is an interesting um, uh, analogy that the Buddha gives. He says, uh, someone if someone has uh, a lot of uh, a lot of pa paramita, if they uh, have a, developed a lot of spiritual skill, um, and then if they um, if they create if they say something you know, um, un, uh, uh, unfriendly or that they they, um, they speak in a way that is or they act in a way that is is unwholesome then because of the strength of all of the good karma they've created said so it's like if you have a spoonful of salt and you put it into the Ganges river 
the river isn't going to taste salty on account of that. But if they don't have much merit, if they're someone who's 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 um, so that that unskillful action doesn't have a, a, a huge amount of of, uh, sort of negative knock-on effects, or it's not doesn't have a, such a potent impact. But if someone who has uh, has generally li- been living in an unskillful way, doesn't have a lot of barometer, has has not developed a lot of wholesome qualities it's like putting a, a spoonful of salt into a glass of water and then you taste the water it'll be really salty so that uh, uh, I, f- I forget exactly where that's found but it's a uh, it's um, one of those uh, there's kind of interesting analogies that the buddha uses that the, the um it's the way that karma ripens is very dependent on Sort of where uh, the circumstances of how it's been created and, and the and the sort of the background to that. It's not like automatic with any individual act. That uh, you get a particular result is going to depend on the 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 field of origin. So I see seven o'clock has come around once again. So let's leave things there for today.